Hi, it's me, Sophia. At the top of the episode, I just want to let you know that in order for me to bounce ideas off Serena and get a better understanding of things, I said a lot of stuff that wasn't totally correct, and then Serena corrected me. So what I'm asking is very nicely, please don't take my words out of context, but also please listen to the whole episode. Don't just listen to like the first 10 minutes and then go, I understand quantum computers now because you and me, buddy, we do not. Okay, enjoy the episode. It is full of information. It made me very tired. I hope you like it. Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia Prince. And I'm Serena Chen. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about how computers do, because it turns out I'm not entirely aware of how computers do. And this was realised to me when I was trying to ask Serena intelligent questions about quantum computing, and she said, I think maybe your problem isn't with how quantum works, but rather with how computers work. So we decided to make a podcast episode about the fact that I just, I just use computers. I don't understand them. Mm. Do you think that's, that sums it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, no one really needs to know about computers, but I think... If you're curious about quantum computing, then knowing a little bit about how the fundamentals of computing work really helps with understanding that. So, um, computers are complicated, to say the least. So for a little bit of background, computers like the computer you sort of use day to day and the computer on your phone, those are all standard or classical computers. Um, Mm -hmm. Quantum computers use things called qubits, which are superpositioned bits. So normally a bit inside a computer can be zero or one. I know this. Mm -hmm. I know very basic computing stuff. Mm -hmm. A qubit can be anything between zero and one and all of those different positions. And that means you can store a lot more information in a lot fewer bits. And they also allow for parallel processing. So normally computers do one thing after another, And when you're coding, often you need to explain every single step to them unless you're creating something that's meant to learn by itself. So like a neural network. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Please, please continue like um, validating these things that I say because like I'm a (laughs) bit wobbly on a lot of it. (laughs) I should also like full disclaimer, my knowledge of quantum computing is piecemealed together from my knowledge of quantum and my knowledge of computing and it's all at a very theoretical level so if you have any questions about like you know how do we physically construct these quantum computers i am i can theoretically give you an answer (laughs) is what i can say they keep them cold that's what i know about it (laughs) they keep them cold yes (laughs) and a lot of a lot of information surrounding quantum computers is uh kept very secret because they're suspected to be like the next big change in how we do computing and part of that Mm. is this ability to do parallel solving of problems so instead of you know when you're looking for the prime factors of a really really big number which we've talked a little bit about before um, and that's involved in bank security a normal computer has to test everything it can't sort of test everything at once it has to do it all in a row and that means it takes a really really long time to you know break into a bank account if you're just using brute force an easier way is to steal someone's password. Um, quantum computing can test everything at once and will probably break 
what currently exists as security. And I think there are ways around that, and we'll probably come onto that later, but that's the sort of basis of like computing as I understand it, and how other people would probably understand it, because I don't get computers. <laughs> oh, no one does. No one, no one, literally no one in the world understands computers from top to bottom. So the bit that, uh, when you say that like a quantum computer can simultaneously check all the answers at once. This is this is the part that I'm not quite sold on because quantum computers are really awesome and really fast, but they can only store um, twice as much information as classical computers. Okay, why? Because of uh, well, the thing that makes I feel like I should start more fundamentally. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Okay, so in a normal computer, let's talk about normal computers for one second. Mm -hmm. um, in a normal computer, you have these things called a bit. Um, lots of bits. Eight bits make a byte. Sure, whatever. And then, you know, two to the ten of those makes a kilobyte, and then you get megabytes and gigabytes, and these are stuff that we've all heard of. So all of your, your storage and, you know, your gigabytes and your terabytes of stuff, they're all made of individual bits. And a bit is just... Um, a thing that can be either one or zero. And when I say a thing, I mean it can be anything. In a lot of modern computers, it's um, it's a bit of silicon that's either like one way or the other. Um, you can imagine a piece of wire. If there's current going through it, then it's a one. And if there's no current, it's a zero. You could imagine an atom. And if an atom is... You know, like in high school chemistry, how there's like a ground state and an excited state? Yeah, but also like some of our listeners might not, so please explain that. <laughs> yeah, so atoms have like electrons going around them. Um, a hydrogen atom is the simplest one. It's got just one electron going around it. So if you think um, of a hydrogen atom, you know, it's just chilling out there. One electron, it's, it's in some kind of energy state. But sometimes it might get like a little boost of energy. Maybe it gets hit with the right kind of light particle and then it gets excited. And then that electron jumps to a, a more excited state. Um, you can imagine it orbiting at like a higher level or something. But that kind of stuff doesn't really make a lot of sense in the when you get that small. But, you know, you can imagine it that way. And so that's another thing that we could use as a, as a bit. You know, you could say in its normal state, in its ground state, it'll be a zero, and when it's excited, it'll be a one. Um, you could use sound as your bits, you know, you could say, hey, when you're playing this tone, make it a zero, and when you're playing another tone, make it a one. So bits can be anything. In like old computers, in like the first kind of analog computers, they use like switches to set the zeros yes. and one. That's yes. why they were really big. Mm-hmm. They were huge because they were just huge electrical circuits um, with little switches that flip on and off. So, yeah, we've come a long way since then. But the point is, it can be anything. And in our computers, it's um, it's little bits of silicon. And so computers are kind of wild because they take very, very simple actions um, and they just do it on a scale that's ridiculous to get really complex behavior. So everything that you're seeing on your computer, when you move your mouse, when you play a movie, when you browse the internet, that is all just ones and zeros. Some of them changing from a zero to one, some of them changing from a one to a zero. That's 
all it is. And so you can make a computer by basically manipulating the right ones and zeros. And we do that through um, these things called logic gates. A gate is basically this thing that you, you can send one or two or three or whatever, well, usually one or two bits to, and then it will either give you a one or a zero, or it will flip the bit or it will do a thing. And then the next level up is you can string a whole bunch of these gates together to give you some different behavior. So it will flip different bits. So like choice tricks, like um, I'm sure by the time this comes out, like fucking everyone will have seen Bandersnatch. But like what happens in Bandersnatch in the game? Kind of, yeah. I haven't seen it yet, so no spoilers. Oh, it's real fucking bad. <laughs> Continue. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, so kind of like that, like a... Kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure storybook. Mm. You've got all of these different outcomes, but depending on what logic gates you put in there, the logic gates would... So a really good example is like a an AND gate. Mm. An AND gate um, just gives you a 1 if both of the inputs are 1. Um, if you did any kind of like philosophy, logic philo- in philosophy, um, or any kind of math, you would have done some truth tables in which you get like, you know, if P is true and Q is false, then P and Q is false. That kind of shit. So all of our computers are just built on those tiny, tiny little, very simple manipulations of bits. And then on top of that, you know, you start getting abstractions like assembly language and then on top of that you start getting you know bigger abstractions like the kernel and then you you kind of all computers are just built one on top of the other one abstraction on top of the other until you get to this thing called user land which is where our stuff lives where you get um programs like chrome and firefox and file explorer and skype that we're talking over right now So yeah, computers are really simple things, but done in a really complex way. And it's all made up of bits, which can either be one or a zero. Now, quantum computers uh, exploit the fact that when you look at things at a quantum scale, which is at a really, 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 really small scale, like a particle level scale, on the scale of atoms, Um, on the scale of subatomic particles. At that scale, things get a little weird in that you can't really um, tell everything about the system. Like in, in the classical scale, when we say classical scale, we mean like on the size of things that we see the world around us. So, you know, like the size of my computer, the size of the chair that I'm sitting on, Um, the size of the book that I'm reading, that's at a classical scale. And if I were to, I don't know, do a cat thing and just kind of edge this book towards the ground, then I can measure, you know, the weight of the book. I can measure the angle that the book is going to fall at. I can measure what the gravity potential is, how high it is from off the ground. And so I can predict everything about what will happen when I push this book off the ground, theoretically. Um, I've just pushed my book off the ground. (laughs) Demo! But 
in our world, the the size that we're at, um, we can theoretically measure everything perfectly and determine and predict paths of motion and you know chemical reactions and stuff. We can determine all of those perfectly theoretically with some levels of error. But the smaller you go, the harder it is to precisely and accurately measure things. And also the smaller you go, the stranger everything becomes. Um, When you're in the scale that we live at, we can kind of imagine everything as like a ball. (laughs) This is like a joke that physicists imagine everything to be like a ball in a vacuum. Because everything can kind of at the scale be um, be solved like that, but when you get down to the little wee scales, things like start to behave like waves sometimes, like balls other times, um, both most times, and it, it becomes really confusing. If you want to predict the path of like an electron, you can't really, and you get to a point where you can only kind of vaguely know about the probability this electron and where it's going to go. You can know where it is or how fast it's moving, but not both at the same time. The more precise you are about how fast something is moving, the less you know about where it is. And the more precise you are about where it is, the less you know about how far it's moving. And these are fundamental laws at the quantum scale. It's not like we don't have enough technology to measure them properly. We fundamentally are just not allowed (laughs) to know so much. And other weird things start happening at the quantum scale. So let's say I have this thing called a qubit. Um, And let's say it's just like one hydrogen atom. It could be anything else. It could be light that's polarized one way, zero, polarized the other way, one, whatever. But we'll just take the hydrogen atom. So let's say I have a hydrogen atom and I don't know what state it's in. I don't know if it's a zero or a one. So to me, it can be either a zero or a one. And when it's like that, we call it a superposition. It's like Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't know if our, our listeners will be familiar with Schrodinger's cat, but it's this thought experiment that, <laughs> that someone came up with. Schrodinger? question mark (laughs) came up with to kind of highlight the ridiculousness of a quantum system in which you imagine um, that there's a mad scientist and they lock up a cat in a box with a decaying radioactive isotope yes yes and because the the decay of radioactive isotopes is essentially random you don't really know whether like this thing has decayed or not and is spitting out some radiation or not but if it does spit out radiation then it'll hit a detector and the detector will set off a hammer that then breaks the glass of poison and the cat dies and if it doesn't then you know the cat doesn't die so this is in a sealed box and you can't get any information in or out of this box so from the outside as the mad scientist who set this up you know that there's a 50% chance that the cat is alive and a 50% chance that the cat is dead, but you don't know which one it is. Now, in the classical world, um, in like the normal world that we live in, we would say, ah, the cat is either dead or alive and we just don't know. However, if this was a quantum system, if 
say this cat was actually a, a photon or an electron in a hydrogen atom, we would say that the cat is both dead and alive at the same time. It's in a superposition of states. And it isn't until we open up the box and we look at the cat, then we actually change the state of the system by looking at it. We collapse the wave function, is what it's called. We collapse the superposition and the cat is either dead or alive, but only when we look at the box. When the box is closed, it's 50-50. Not as in it can be one or the other, as in it's literally both dead and alive. Which is weird, right? Yeah. It's super weird. I'm trying to think. I'm sure there's an analogy in the classical world, like in some kind of mobile game or something that, I mean, obviously they're showing this cat, <laughs> um, where something sort of exists in both positions until you like stop the experiment and it snaps to one. And that's essentially what we're talking about here, right? It's like mm. something can exist in a probabilistic way. So like... Mm-hmm. When you're flipping a coin, and while the coin is in the air, it could be both heads and tails. And, you know, mm-hmm. to an extent, it is both heads and tails because it hasn't been decided. But when it lands, it's one or the other. Yeah. That's a suitable analogy? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's like when I have a coin in my hand and I haven't even flipped it yet. What is it? Like, what is it, right? Mm. It's only decided when I flip it and it lands in my hand or on the ground, right? But I haven't even flipped it yet, and I'm and I'm asking you the question, is it heads or tails? And at that point, it's like, it's both. Mm. But yeah, it's a, it's a really weird thing to get your mind around. And I think if you want to understand quantum physics, the first thing you have to be um, comfortable with is not understanding quantum physics. There's a famous quote by Richard Feynman um, where, and I think it's Richard Feynman, where he said that if someone tells you that they understand quantum physics, they're wrong. (laughs) At a very gut level, no one really understands it. And that's something that I had to learn while I was learning it for real, is to kind of put aside my normal intuitions about physics and about just generally how the world works (laughs) and just bury my mind in the math and when you look at the math it all makes sense like when you specifically just look at the equations that you're dealing with it's all fine Um, it's only when you start thinking about the physical implications does it get weird but anyway in the quantum scale of things at the quantum level of things things can be two things at once at the same time They don't have to be 50-50. And at the quantum level, we can't really talk too much about... We don't talk too much about probabilities. We say, okay, let's say there's a state 0 and a state 1 that this, I don't know, atom or whatever can be in. We give um, these two states these things called amplitudes. And these amplitudes are just a number. It's a complex number, so it can be negative, it can be imaginary. So they're not quite probabilities. When you take that amplitude to the power of 2 and take the absolute value, that gives you the probability of that state happening. Okay, can I take a quick sidebar? Yeah, of course. Why imaginary numbers? Why imaginary numbers? So when you're giving an amplitude to something, mm. why, why is it a complex number? Is it because you're doing it on the weird graph? 
That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of... <laughs> okay, is it is it just the easiest way for us to understand the super weird thing that's happening? I wouldn't say it's the easiest way, but it's the way that explains and encodes a lot of the information that we're seeing. Okay. Yeah, so complex numbers are real numbers, which are, like, all of the numbers we know, plus all of the imaginary numbers. And imaginary numbers are all based on the square root of minus one. Yes. Yes. And you can kind of think of it as like a vertical axis and you get like a plane of numbers. It's quite cool. It's quite like beautiful visually as well. But I think we use complex numbers because they're a good mathematical instrument to describe the kind of behaviors that we're trying to to explain. Is it because... The, the sprays that we get of atoms and like the um, the Large Hadron Collider, those sprays are best modeled on the complex plane? Um, kind of. <laughs> A good way to think about it is math is like language in that math isn't real, right? Just like how English isn't real. It's just a tool that we use to communicate something. So... I'm using English to you right now to try and communicate thoughts in my head, to try and describe, you know, the things that I'm thinking. And math is similar in that it's just a a tool that scientists use to describe the world around them. So we use complex numbers because they have really uh, handy mathematical properties that describe the things that we're trying to describe in a really nice way. With complex numbers, you can express a lot of things uh, as using like trigonometric functions, um, and I think yeah, that stuff is nice. Yeah, it's like those untranslatable German words. Yeah, that we just like that we just like use in English. Like Schadenfreude can be translated, but it's not exact. Yeah, that's actually yeah, that is a really nice analogy. You can think of it as, like, let's say we all know, like, ten languages and I want to communicate something very specific to you. Um, and what I'm doing is just selecting the language that will most efficiently and most completely communicate that. And so when scientists choose, like, which mathematical models, which number spaces to use, that's that's what we're doing is we're just selecting the right kind of language to communicate these ideas in. Yeah, okay. that's a lovely analogy. That's lovely. <laughs> I like that. That's good because I feel like I'm being a, just so slow on this episode. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Not at all. Yeah, so you've got two states, zero and one. They've got some kind of complex amplitude. Um, and when you times it by itself, that gives you the probability. And these can be... Like, when you think of the probabilities, these can be anything between 0 and 1. So I could have a hydrogen atom that is 25% in the state 0 and 75% in the state 1. And that's that's what it is. And the, I think the, the hardest thing to get over and the hardest thing to drill into your head is that it's not that it hasn't decided yet, it's that it's both. It's both at the same time. And when we measure it, 
when we actually want to see what state it's in, we collapse that and we get it to take on a state that is either 100% zero or 100% one. And so that's what quantum bits are made of. Quantum bits are just normal bits, except we're going to do some things where we are going to try and use the fact that we can encode more information when we know that it's got more than just two states, right? Because in the classical world, we've got a bit and it's only got two states. It can either only be zero or one. But in the quantum world, it's got all of these states kind of in between and they're all valid states. So the whole idea of quantum computing is, can we use this quantum knowledge to somehow encode more information? Because if we can encode more information in a single bit, then the effect of that is exponential. Because we build everything on the fact that these bits are either zero or one. So everything on top of that will change. And it doesn't have to affect how we do computing. It doesn't have to affect like the logic gates that we use, although we do use some like different logic gates in quantum computing. Like we could have a quantum computer um, and if it works how, you know, normal computers work, which it probably will, then we can run Chrome on it. We can run C Sharp on it. We can run all of the computing languages are just abstractions built on top of zeros and ones. And so that's why it's so exciting, because if we can somehow encode more information into a single bit, that makes everything faster. Because you have to do, like, when you want to add two numbers together, you have to, like, flip quite a few bits, and you have to, like, do a lot of work. When the language that you have to talk about everyday things is only zeros or ones, when your alphabet is just zeros and ones, like, you have to have a lot of letters to kind of express what you want to express. So if you have more room for that, then you can express more things, you can be more efficient. So that's the exciting thing. Can we also talk about entanglement a little bit? Because I think that's a really important part of quantum computers and particularly when it looks at like communication. Yes. Yes. So quantum entanglement is another weird thing um, about quantum physics. Um, When we say we're going to look at the wave function of a particle. Um, the wave function is something that describes the state of the particle. And as we've said before, it can be, you know, in a superposition of many states. That's cool. Let's say we want to look at the wave function of two particles, but as like one whole system, as one quantum system. Uh, normally, what you would do is you would add those two wave functions together and you would get like a combined wave function for that quantum system of two particles. But for some quantum systems of two particles, you have a wave function that you can't decompose into its individual wave functions. Like you can't split it out and say, this is the wave function for particle A, this is the wave function for particle B, add them together, that's it. You know, we can take it apart. For entangled systems, you get this wave function for particles A and B, but you can't decompose it into just the wave function for A plus just for the wave function for B. And so this system is said to be entangled in that their state is fundamentally linked together. You can't decompose it. 
Which is like, okay, cool. So we've got like a little equation that describes a system of two particles, whatever. The weird thing about entangled particles is that they become correlated in some way. And so if you measure one of them and the measurement is a one, then you know that the other one is also going to be a one. If you measure one of them and the other one uh, and it's a zero, then you know that the other one is also going to be a zero. So there's a correlation there. When you measure one of them, do you collapse the wave function of both of them? My guess is yes, because there's one wave function describing the whole system. There is a question on Stack Exchange that is exactly this. <laughs> oh, hooray. Thank you, internet. Okay. Yes, it will collapse both of them. So the weird thing about that is that these two particles could be hundreds and hundreds of kilometers apart. And if you measure one, suddenly you know what the state of the other one is. And a lot of people have said, is this communication? Like, is this transport of data faster than the speed of light? Because it's immediate. You know what both particle states are as soon as you measure one. Um, to which the answer is no, it is not. <laughs> it's a it's a correlation. There uh, there is no information transfer when you measure that that first particle. Okay, hold on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Could it be used as communication? Y- yes. So a lot of um, <laughs> well, kind of. It's kind of like. And this is the thing, is that you can only kind of use it for communication if, say, Alice and Bob first get together and set up this kind of entangled state at the same place. And then, say, Bob can take his particle away, far, far away, to wherever, you know, he needs to be. And then you can do a little bit of quantum communication that way. But you have to have that setup stage. So that's the that's the limitation. Okay. Yeah. Entanglement is a it's an idea that we can use to transfer information. But you can only transfer the information density is only twice as much as classical. So when you think of a qubit, when you think of, you know, like a hydrogen atom or whatever, that's in a quantum superposition of states, you could think, oh, well, there's infinite states between zero and one, so surely it can store infinite information. Yeah, and this is the question that started it all off, just for context. This is the question I asked Serena, where I was like, why can't it solve infinite things? Anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah, Yeah. Um, but the limitation that we have is one of measurement, because by definition... It's in a superposition, and we can't know. Like, we can't measure it. Okay. Uh, it's in some kind of superposition. It's in some kind of X percent zero and Y percent one. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. If we can't measure the amplitude of quantum systems, mm-hmm. why on earth have we got numbers to define the amplitude of quantum systems? Because it defines the kind of weird behavior. It describes the weird behavior that we see the best. Okay. If you can imagine 
like a really complex 3D structure that you're holding in your hands. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a light in the room, and it's casting a shadow on the ground. Yeah. The shadow on the ground is the thing that we see in real life. Okay. I'm, like, I'm basically saying life is Plato's allegory of the cave. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, this sounds like platonic solids, continue. <laughs> yes, like, everything, but, like, here's a point. Everything that we see is just a shadow of something more complex. And we just see, like, a, a, like a thin sliver of how it manifests in our reality. I'm getting, like, super fucking philosophical with this, sorry. Um, but, like, that's the best way to think about it. So let's say we're kind of coming up with some kind of theory that explains how this shadow moves on the ground. Um, if we just consider the shadow as a 2D thing, we're going to miss out on a lot of explanations. Like, we're going to have to come up with more complex explanations of why that shadow is changing how it's changing. But if we model it in a more complicated 3D space, our explanation is actually simpler and more efficient and more beautiful. Like how we used to understand space. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and like all of physics, really. All of physics is just a lot of like crazy math stuff to try and explain what we see in the real world. And it's really easy, like, especially when you're doing physics, to think that the math is the science, is what's actually happening. But we have no idea. Like, we just don't, we just can't know. The math is just our way to try and describe what's happening. Yeah. And we kind of, you know, hope it's right. Anyway, this is why we have complex amplitudes. You know, we're using imaginary numbers to describe things. Um, like quantum systems have like a phase evolution thing going on and a phase is something that you just can't measure. Like it has, but it does explain stuff that we do measure. So that's why we have all of this like complicated stuff that we just like can never measure because it explains how we turn this 3D shape and then explains the shadows that we see on the ground, essentially. It explains the stuff that we see in real life. And so the reason why qubits can't just be everything at once is because we're limited by measurement. As soon as we measure something, as soon as we turn the light on in the room and we read the shadow on the floor, we destroy the 3D object. <laughs> okay, this is where my analogy breaks down. <laughs> if you imagine turning the light on in the room and as soon as the light turns on, the 3D object, like, pancakes into the shadow. Yeah. That's what we're doing to the quantum system. Like, as soon as we measure the quantum system, we're squishing this beautifully intricate and fragile wave function, boom, into either zero or one. I'm appreciating the sound effects you're doing in this episode. Thank you. I'm, I'm just really excited to talk about <laughs> quantum physics for the first time in, like, five years. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, my degree means something. <laughs> Oh, God, that's way too real. Yeah. Go back to talking about quantum physics, please. <laughs> anyway, so this is why we can't, we can't really use all the states. Um, but what we can do is we can be sneaky about it. We can be tricky about it. 
we can say, hey, let's set up a, an entangled quantum system and let's sneak a measurement here holding this 3D object at this angle. And if we can sneak another measurement holding the 3D object at a different angle, we can get some more information about the system. Oh, oh, hold on. I have another question about entanglement. Yes. Can you only entangle two particles? I think theoretically you can entangle as many as you like. Okay, okay, cool. Continue. Yeah. But all of my textbooks start at two because I assume it just like gets a bit extra <laughs> when you put three. Who knows? Who knows? And like also the textbooks that I'm reading are probably comparatively very 101 stuff. Or maybe it's just not practical for like actual real quantum computers. There is so much that I don't know, listeners. We're just out here doing our best, really. That's what we're doing. 2019, trying our best. (laughs) So, as the math turns out, um, as it so happens, if we set up an entangled state and we do some really sneaky kind of measurements in one basis, we call them bases, um, which is just, you can think of it as you've got this complex kind of like 3D thing and you want to cast a shadow in one direction, but if you cast a shadow in a different direction, it'll give you a different shadow. And it will give you more information about this 3D object that you're holding, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is how we get a lit, like we squeeze as much information out of a quantum system as we can by measuring things in, from different angles, in different bases, we call them. Okay. And when we do that, we can get double the amount of information from the same amount of bits and that's the thing uh that's the interesting consequence of quantum computing is that suddenly we're like twice as dense information storage and manipulation so is it only twice as dense because surely it would increase exponentially the more bits you put together in the same way that classical computing does. And if it starts yes. out being twice as dense, then sh- that should diverge from classical computing. Yes. Kind of. Yes. The really tricky thing about quantum computing is that at the end of the day, when you do make the measurements, everything kind of uh, collapses back down to a classical computer. Because everything we start with is classical inputs, ones or zeros. Like our inputs have to be ones or zeros and our outputs have to be ones or zeros. So our starting point and our finishing point is all classical. But what we do in between that, um, all of the like tricky, fancy quantum things that we can do in between that, all of the fancy quantum logic gates and the manipulation of those bits, that can be quantum. Uh, So yes, we can do just exponentially more shit in between. But, you know, at the end of this uh, this calculation, at the end of whatever this function, whatever this, like, quantum kind of box that you're making, at the end of it, it has to be classical ones and zeros. And so that's always the limitation, is that you're going to measure it at some point, you know, to know what it is, because you have to for computing. Um so you're limited by the classical thing. But everything in the middle, like, we can put in a whole bunch of, like, quantum logic gates in the middle, and it can it can make use of the fact that these qubits are in superpositions, and we can manipulate these qubits 
in this fancy like third dimension in my analogy that we're doing but everything that we input into this quantum computer are shadows and everything that we see from it are the shadows does okay. that kind of make sense yeah a little bit yeah yeah no no one understands quantum physics everyone tell yourself that like don't feel bad about thinking this is weird and not understanding it no one understands it some of us just know the math that's it that's the only <laughs> difference <laughs> Okay, then, hmm, why is it useful to, like, supercomputers exist? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question. Hmm. Basically, there's a bunch of research into superconductors that seems to be happening alongside research into quantum computers because quantum computers have to be really cold, so there's mm-hmm. not as much noise. Mm-hmm. And superconductors have to be really cold, so there's not as much friction, resistance. Mm-hmm. Why, why do quantum computers matter? Like, why is this a thing? Right. Um, because bits are the fundamental building block of all of our computers. So there exist supercomputers, which are basically just like, like, take your laptop whatever laptop, and buy 10,000 of them and link them all up. That's essentially what a supercomputer is. It's just more of the same thing. And that's kind of like how computers have gotten better and faster is that we've just taken the exact same thing and made it smaller. And that's the only reason computers are quote-unquote faster today. It's because we've taken the exact same logic the exact same kind of system and we've just made it smaller and because we've made it smaller we can like you know put more of them next to each other and we can just have more of the same thing so classical supercomputers are really really fast um because there's a lot of them and you can just like throw a lot of problems all at once at them and they just do the same kind of computation the same kind of computation that your normal computer does, that your phone does, that you know your laptop does, but just lots and all at the same time. Quantum computers matter because they affect the very basic building block of all computing, which is bits. And because they affect that, that has this kind of exponential runoff consequence, this effect. Like, in classical computing, we have classical logic gates. And, not, or, xor, nand. I think those are all the ones. I could be wrong. No, I think those are all of them. Um, And all of computers are just made up of those handful of logic gates. Um, And you can think of logic gates as, like, operations you can do to manipulate bits. In the quantum world, because you've got you know, a little bit more information per bit, you can have this this glorious kind of whole new bunch of things that you can do to the bits, these new logic gates, these new operators. And so that kind of shakes up the entire foundation of computing. And when you get a quantum computer, the things that it's doing at the most foundation level is completely different to the things that a classical computer is doing. Now, maybe at, you know, the more 
abstract higher levels of computing, maybe they're doing the same thing. Maybe they both run JavaScript. Everything runs JavaScript now. Everything is JavaScript. So maybe they can do that. But at the foundational level, what they're doing, the things that they're doing is very, I mean, it's not that different, but it's different enough to have far-reaching consequences. And because the information density of quantum qubits, well, <laughs> qubits, quantum bits, is so much richer, suddenly we can do things faster than we've ever imagined before. And every day there's new quantum algorithms coming out for how to solve these, you know, these problems that were solved years and years and decades and decades ago using quantum bits. So, yeah, and it because it's because it can solve things really fast. This is like kind of bad for cryptography, right? Yes, From it what is. what I understand, a lot of cryptography is based on here is a problem that would take like millions of years for a classical computer to solve. Yes. We good. Yes, because factoring really, really big numbers is really, really hard. It'll destroy blockchain as well. Yes. I'm so happy. <laughs> and, you know, with a quantum computer, suddenly it's like, oh, suddenly this very, very hard problem has become uh, quite a significant amount easier. How does this change P versus NP? It doesn't. Okay. Um, P versus MP is a, a mathematical problem. Again, from my understanding, might be incorrect, feel free to correct. But from my understanding, P versus MP is a question of like whether there exists a set of problems whose solutions are easy to check. Which is something different to problems that are easy to solve? Not quite. P versus MP is... Um, it's a question of uh, about computing, and it's a question about, let's say you've got a generic problem, uh, how, and it's all theoretical. It's not like you you actually throw it at a real computer. It's theoretically, how fast would a computer in quotation marks, how fast would a computer solve this generic problem? And there's these two classes of problems. Um, well, there's a few classes, but in this question, there's two classes. There's P and NP. P stands for polynomial. So that means that this problem can be solved in a thing called polynomial time, in which the, the time it takes for this algorithm to solve this problem can be described as a polynomial. Um, there's some more stuff to it, but it's, it's all math, so don't worry about that. And then there's a second class called NP problems, which are non-polynomial problems. And these are a class of problems solved by an algorithm that would take a non-polynomial amount of time. And usually that's an exponential. Uh, it's described as an exponential, which means it just takes a really, really fucking long time to solve this problem. And an unsolved problem in math and computer science is whether... Problems that are able to be solved with polynomial algorithms and problems that are only able to be solved with non-polynomial algorithms, whether they're actually the same class of problems and we're just dumbasses and we, uh, we just haven't found the polynomial solutions for this greater class of problems. So that's, that's the P versus MP problem in a very, very crude nutshell. Um, and it doesn't have 
too much to do with the actual practical application of how we solve those problems. It's more to do with theoretically, can we find an algorithm that solves it with this kind of time uh, profile? Does that make sense? Sort of. I guess like my question comes from the fact that it's like it's a computing mathematical question. So yes. if the way we do computing fundamentally changes, mm. would that change this problem? It might. It might. Okay. It's the same kind of um, thing with the Riemann hypothesis. It's like if we either confirm or not confirm the Riemann hypothesis, does that mean that we suddenly uh, we suddenly can predict the randomness of prime numbers. And no, there is no direct link between uh, solving the Riemann hypothesis and understanding prime numbers at a level where we can predict when they'll come up and we can, you know, factorize them at the click of a finger, at the stroke of a pen. Um, but it does increase the probability. I mean, if we understand so much about prime numbers that we could solve the Riemann hypothesis, then it might mean that we've just stumbled across, you know, this extra piece of knowledge about prime numbers. And similarly with um, P versus MP, if we solve, you know, if we make quantum computers, and we already have made quantum computers, um, but if we like really understand and make all these like new kind of quantum algorithms, uh, does that mean we solve P versus MP? No, it doesn't directly mean that, but it might mean that we as a as a society, as a scientific society, understand a little more about the different kind of algorithms that we could come up with. Maybe we find some new things there, and maybe that will then be another step along the way for us to solve this more fundamental problem. So yeah, it, it could it could contribute to that knowledge, but there is no direct link. It's exciting stuff. Man, it's, it's super cool. It's a lot of math, though. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, some of the applications, like, seem to be really interesting. So, like, one of the applications suggested for quantum computing is modeling of molecules. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't totally understand how that works, but apparently quantum computers are meant to be very good at molecule modeling really quickly which is currently like quite a computationally heavy thing to do Mm. and that should be really helpful for things like drug discovery that'd be good like my my initial thought of anything any kind of like problems that we could throw at quantum computing are all the computationally heavy problems so like i immediately think back to protein folding yeah um the folding up home stuff that i used to do as a kid just run on my computer Distributed computing projects, like that kind of stuff, would be good to throw at quantum computers. Yeah, will there be stuff that they can do that's sort of, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like the answer is obviously yes. I guess my question is more like, do you have any idea of the kind of things that quantum computers will be able to do that classical computers just, like, can't at all right now? The big one is prime factoring really, 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 really big numbers. But that's still... Mm. That's the one everyone's talking. And that's the one that's going to have like the most far-reaching consequence, I think. Yeah, I feel like that's still a question of speed, though. I guess it's mm-hmm. more an issue of how we think about problems. Right, like, is there is there a problem that classical computers can't solve at all? Yeah. Right. I suspect 
that as like more quantum computers are built and they get bigger because i think the largest ones that have been like definitely proven right now so aren't huge no we will start understanding that we can ask problems in totally different ways yes no that's that's for sure and i think a lot of the most exciting stuff like especially since we're in such a baby stage of quantum computers a lot of the most exciting stuff that we'll be asking in different ways are probably going to be very fundamental questions and very like questions that sound boring like how do you factor this number that that's something you know no normal person ever thinks about in their daily life things like here is this simple mathematical problem like how do we throw this at a quantum computer to best harness its quantumness to best harness how it solves a problem and and that will be that will be the most exciting stuff in our day and age in the next 10 years is how do we come up with quantum algorithms to solve the problems that we've already solved with using classical computers um, but how do we do it in a quantum way to really take advantage of that extra information density Hey, thanks for listening to Things of Interest. This episode has been about quantum computing and Serena has really just blown our minds about the whole quantum world and how that might pertain to computers and how that sort of interacts with the building blocks of basically how we interact with the world because a lot of our interactions with the world are done through computers these days. Mm. Um, It's been fascinating and really just thank you so much for doing this. Oh, me? Yeah, you. Thank you for listening. Oh my goodness. I have to like take a sort of hour-long nap to kind of digest all this information (laughs) I just absorbed, but it's been great. Yeah, you did so well. That's so much stuff and information and like really, really complex kind of mental models that took me years to get my head around. So kudos to you. Thank you. Um, as usual, you can find us online. We're on Twitter at Casting Interests. We're on Facebook as Things of Interest. And you can email us. Um, we're castinginterest at gmail.com. If you want to leave us a review, if you liked this episode, if you liked another episode, if you want us to talk about something that we haven't yet or revisit an old topic, like we've been going for ages now, so we could do that. Um, hmm please leave us some stars on iTunes and send us an email if you want to let us know opinions that you have because we would love to hear them and if they're terrible opinions we'll be polite about it they're probably not terrible, please email us (laughs) yeah I mean like, look, if you've got this far like they're probably not terrible opinions yeah (laughs) and also tell a friend like that's really how people find out about us is when you recommend us and say hey I listened to this really cool podcast where they talked about quantum computing for an hour and it was just mind blowing thank you so much Sophia and Serena that would be great, (laughs) say exactly those words (laughs) Um, I've been Sophia Friends and I'm Serena Chen and as always, stay interesting